Welcome everyone to In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson, and today we have a special episode for you recorded in Washington, D.C. at the Association of Corporate Counsel's annual conference. We recorded several episodes at the conference, and I think they are some of the best conversations we've had to date. Longtime listeners may notice that the audio isn't quite as good as we typically produce. We used our travel equipment, so please forgive any technical issues. We have a special program today. We just concluded a panel on compliance, ethics, and governance, a healthcare perspective here at the National Association of Corporate Counsel meeting in Washington, D.C. And members of that panel have been gracious enough to join us on this issue. Joining me today are Larry Vernalia, a partner at Foley and Lardner. Also, we have Karen Litzinger, who's a Senior Vice President, Operations and General Counsel at Marixa Corporation, and also Chris Mullet, Executive Vice President and General Counsel at Edward Elmhurst Healthcare. Also, my partner, Jill Girardo from our Atlanta office, uh, Jill practices in healthcare and HIPAA law. As listeners know, I am not in the healthcare area. I'm a business litigator, but I found today's presentation really exciting and want to provide our listeners with a highlight to some of the stuff that was covered in the panel and maybe dive deeper into a few of those issues. Larry, we don't have time to go through the whole hypothetical that you presented. The things that struck me that would apply to our listeners that are both in the healthcare area and also GCs in general, one of the first challenges was really, how do you deal with an employee that may have something bad they wanna tell you? And maybe if you could just start us off by talking a little bit about how those situations arise. You went through a hypothetical where you had an employee um, who's trying to be good but was telling you about stuff. Tell us, help, help us set up for our listeners uh, this challenge about how do you have those initial discussions with employees? Well, you know, outside of our hypothetical, Mark, I think that for the in-house counsel, this comes up quite organically. And for us outside lawyers like you and me uh, and Jill, when people present an issue to us, they're presenting the issue to us. It's like they're going to the doctor because they know they got something they want to check out. I think in the in-house setting, it's a lot different. I think that there's a lot more casual conversations, communications, lunchroom, after the board meeting, going to your car in the parking lot. And I think that that's an issue that we addressed on our panel a little bit, is that you could give a Upjohn warning, a corporate Miranda warning, 10 times a day. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the toughest things, I think, for in-house counsel is because you don't know when that person walks into your office and says, hey, I want to run something by you, or hey, let me just tell you about this thing I just heard. You don't know what's at the other end of that. I mean, it honestly could be somebody complaining about their cube mate who, you know, is playing on Facebook all day long, or it could be fraud, (laughs) and you really don't know what it is. So when in that process you treat this a little bit more seriously. And as early as you know, it might be what I call a thing, which means something you're really going to need to investigate that really could be a problem. You need to remind that employee that the company is your client, that you represent the company, you don't represent them individually, privilege belongs to the company, et cetera, et cetera. That's the Upjohn warning that we all know and love. But it's a very hard thing to do with a colleague, maybe a friend who's come to you for advice or is just, you don't, again, you don't want to do it all the time. And I will tell you, despite the fact that I'm very aware of this issue, in 10 years of my current job, I've 
probably said those words two or three times. Oh, wow. So it is not something that comes up every day. Um, it's just one of those things when we sit in a CLE that you worry about because when that big thing comes, if you don't do it right, it can have some consequences. Yeah, and it probably wasn't a big thing when it first came to you. No. It was probably a, a little thing. Yeah. No, and, 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 and I, I think to Karen's point, these are all your colleagues that you're working with, and it's it's very difficult as in-house counsel to keep that top of mind. It's not part of your natural conversation. And it's not that you want everybody to like you necessarily, but you have to maintain a good working relationship with all these individuals. And so as Larry started out, if you go to the other extreme and you feel compelled to give the warning all the time, you're pretty soon going to be the loneliest GC on the yep. planet. Yep. Well, the other thing is because our jobs are not purely legal in-house. So you are not thinking with your lawyer hat all the time. I mean, we've all been lawyers long enough. It's always there. But unlike Larry, who you come to him with a legal problem, and because you may need to self-disclose or you may need his help with an investigation, we are probably, our first thought when they come and say, hey, can I run something by you, is you're thinking about the business implications and what do we need to do and who do we need to tell and who do we need to involve and, and those things much more than the, oh, wait a second, if once we do all these things, it turns out that the end result could be X, Y, Z, I need to be thinking as a lawyer. It, you have to stop and remind yourself of that sometimes. I, I would go even one step further and I think in my role as general counsel and I think for a lot of general counsels, as this role has evolved, that more and more and more the general counsel is involved in more of the business and strategic discussions and decisions and recommendations than, strictly speaking, functioning as a lawyer. And frankly, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy being general counsel in-house, but it's also something that is potentially perilous territory for a general counsel because you have to remember when you have to kind of snap out of it <laughs> and put on the general counsel hat and make sure that the people in the room with you understand what hat you're wearing at what time, which is not easy. That's great advice. And again, just as a reminder to listeners, the Upjohn warning we're talking about is a reminder that you are counsel to the organization, not to those employees. So even if this is an employee you've known for 10 years and are friends with and you've talked about a lot of stuff, if they're suddenly coming in and telling you something that they may have done that violated the law or that's going to get the company in trouble, your duty is to protect the company not that employee. Yep. And as we talked about in the session today, there are a couple reasons for that. One is your professional responsibility obligations that you need to tell the employee that. Um, the other is to protect the privilege because if the employee ends up having a what they call a reasonable belief that you are representing both them and the corporation, and the corporation down the road chooses to waive the privilege and self-disclose certain information from what ultimately ends up being that investigation, the employee could raise their hand and say, but I also have a privilege in that information and I don't want to waive mine. And you don't want to be the lawyer who didn't give the appropriate disclosure and cause that heartburn to the company where you really want to cooperate with the government and you can't. And I would suggest to you that where that can become even more challenging is in our example today in our session, that employer, those employees were rank and file staff type employees. They were line nurses on the floor. What if that person who's coming to you is one of the executives in the C-suite that you're officing next to? 
that takes on a whole other dimension in terms of how you handle that issue. One of the things we talked about this afternoon was, or this morning, I should say, is um, when you've got the in-house counsel after evaluating this problem and realizing that there may be some challenges, and she starts talking to outside counsel about the problem and then folds in, what are my ethical obligations as a lawyer? Well, that was an interesting digression we had for a little while. And realizing that at that point, the in-house counsel's personal obligations might diverge a bit from the best interests of the organization. And that becomes a challenge for outside counsel, especially if you've had a long-standing working relationship. With all due respect, it's easy to become comfortable in that relationship, too, and kind of forget when you maybe need to stop and make a different recommendation. Because the in-house counsel is not our client. Exactly. The company is. Right. Exactly. And that question about what can I disclose, what are my obligations, that's a question, a legal problem of the in-house counsel as opposed to the organization. Right. So I think you're right. I think really, you know, it, it contemplates that going. And I think that we talked in the session, the idea of getting advice about that issue contemplates more going to the bar, getting advice from some independent lawyer who really is the lawyer for the lawyer saying, here are your professional obligations. But I think that line gets very blurry. You know what I like about the line is knowing it's there because it's easy to cross it without even thinking about it. You know, when you're in, when you're in the midst of one of these conversations that what are my ethical obligations? I'm a lawyer here. That's so easy to be part of the, the thought exercise and being able to at least see the line and be able to say, let's stop here for a minute and talk about what you just asked. Having that conversation is perfectly healthy, but you might easily, it could just blow right past you in one of these sessions. Do you ever document the Upjohn warning? Maybe it's the litigator perspective from me, but you know, I, I see you know, in one of these cases where it really blows up, it's typically that individual employee who says, no, wait a minute, when I came, I was talking to Chris, I thought he was my lawyer, uh, we know each other, he was telling me what to do, I can't believe he's now turned me in. It's, it's obviously off-putting to give it. It's going to be even more off-putting to put it in writing. But I, I don't know your thoughts. We on did that. talk about that in our in our I, preparation, at least. Yeah, I don't think an in-house counsel would almost ever do that on their own. I think once you've called in outside counsel and you're having you're in already a more formal setting of an interview with a bunch of faces they've never seen, guys in suits, as I call them. I don't think it's going to be a whole lot more off-putting than being in that situation and giving that warning anyway. So if my outside counsel advised that we should also have the employee sign it or hand it to them in writing or something, I wouldn't worry too much about that. However, what happens if you felt compelled to give the Upjohn warning before you engaged outside then counsel? Then I, I would take, I would put that in my notes. I would write a memo exactly. to the file right. um, or something to that effect. Absolutely, you want to document that you gave it. It's not as perfect, obviously, from a litigator's perspective, because it's going to be my recollection after the fact of what I said. They may say I didn't say it or I said something different, used different words. Right. But Certainly, even at a law firm, different partners have different strategies for it. We ha- I, ha- I have some who will only do it in writing signed by the by the witness, which means that, that she does less interviews, I guess, because people will <laughs> her. Um, you know, another strategy that I've seen quite effective is when the or- interviews are being organized by in-house counsel or compliance, in the email that explains why they're being invited, you can put the elements of uh, what the expectations will be in that email. More often, though, I'll tell you what I do, is I never do an interview by myself. I always go with a note-taker or a prover. Um, and so I can do the interview without taking any notes. And the interview memo always says, you know, Mr. Raleigh gave the upshot warnings. And so that then the prover is there to be able to, to testify exactly what I said. 
And of course, if you get far enough into it, you're going to be hiring separate counsel for the individuals anyway, and then they're going to turn to their lawyer and ask them what they should think or what and they, they should do. And they won't be interviewed won't. anymore. <laughs> or under very different circumstances. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, to me, the most interesting and kind of central thing that we talked about on the panel is kind of a conflict between you as the in-house counsel and the person you're reporting to. You talked about a hypothetical where a nurse said that she had heard that a physician was giving his login information to a nurse and telling her to go ahead and approve orders, which would be a very serious violation of company policy, law. We can talk about exactly what that means uh, there. But then reporting that to the CEO who says, that's just innuendo, don't do anything. And I think that, whether you're in the healthcare perspective or somewhere else, that's a pretty significant conflict because the person you're reporting to is saying, don't investigate. You believe you need to investigate. And I think that you know really captures a, a fundamental conflict there. Uh, let me ask first, I mean, how realistic is that? I know we talked about some maybe more realistic scenarios. How often does that happen? Well, could I just add one additional fact to that? I think mm -hmm. what's germane to that here is that before that situation occurred in the facts we gave, the organization had already discovered something. The organization had already made a, a disclosure to the government. And so the issue in our fact pattern was kind of a continuation of the same set of facts, as opposed to if we started out fresh, first time anybody's heard about it, and the CEO is shutting it down right from the get-go. At least on this one, there was some credibility for the CEO to take the position that it's just innuendo and we've already addressed it, we've already disclosed it, I'm not concerned about it. And that's an important distinction, I think, uh, for the general counsel now sitting in that, in that role. I think you're right. I also think that we set up a situation where the general counsel probably hadn't done enough preliminary diligence on the allegations before going to the CEO. And the CEO, when confronted with preliminary allegations, which lead in a bad place, or trust the old investigation, which leads to a good place, he'll be struggling to go with the first option. Absolutely. I think if we played that one over again, the mistake the general counsel may, made was to go with very little facts. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing the general counsel should have done was to have investigated further and then come forward to the CEO with some more information. I think that's right. I would say back to Mark's original question, how often are you completely in conflict as a GC with the CEO or does he tell you, don't look at that anymore, don't do anything? I don't think it's usually that black and white. I think there are absolutely situations of pressure to go a certain direction, come up with a certain answer, find a way for the company to do what the CEO wants to do. And that is generally an ongoing dialogue. It's not gonna be one, hey, I wanna tell you about this, get out of my office, I don't wanna talk about it. They will tell you what they want and then there will be an ongoing dialogue about whether you can or can't reach that resolution for them. Um, and I was suggesting in the session, a lot of times I find it's helpful to where perhaps the direction is not the direction I think the company should go, to point out to the CEO the ways in which he or she may be personally implicated in this, the implications to him or her of one course of action versus another, tends to resonate more than just what's good for the company or what might ultimately have one or 
or the other financial consequence. Um, but it's definitely sometimes a chipping away. You know, they don't want to hear it, and you have to tell them a little bit, and then you go back for another conversation and tell them a little bit more, and you go back and you, and you in between are both maybe investigating, but also thinking about it, talking to your outside counsel perhaps, or talking to other colleagues, and you're finding other ways to present it, other angles, other things to discuss, and, and generally with a good open relationship with your CEO, even those who can be difficult and authoritarian and other things that CEOs can sometimes be, you can usually get to at least a better place than where you started. And life isn't usually as clean as a nice law school hypothetical that no. we had before <laughs> us today. Usually facts are messier, and it's not always obvious mm -hmm. what the right thing to do. And, our job as lawyers is not really to make the decisions for this company. Our job is to tell the organization what the risks are, help them evaluate the law, tell them what their options are, and ultimately there are business decisions to be made. In our hypo, the CEO apparently was going to make a bad one, <laughs> but we, I bet you that we have a lot more situations where we might make a different decision than the one that the CEO did, and that doesn't mean that that's an opportunity to go cleaning out your resume or your desk. Mm -hmm. Or it means maybe you need to try to figure out how to be on the path of being a CEO instead of a lawyer. <laughs> right. right. I was struck by the point you made, Chris, about really it's a sequence issue because I think particularly for some of our listeners that may be new to the GC position or figuring out the role, I think the instinct may often be, oh, I need to keep the executives informed. So I've heard about this rumor, I'm letting them know I'm going to go investigate it and not expecting to be told, stop. And obviously here, the better course I think everyone is saying is go ahead and investigate it so you have all the facts you can, then present it to the CEO and say, this is what the situation is. So there's not this opportunity to be in this awkward situation of don't waste your time on that. Or, that's not a priority. But I think that may be counterintuitive to a message where people have heard, keep them in the loop, you know, know what they're doing. I think that can be hard for folks. Uh, that said, Mark, I, I think one of the other challenges you face as general counsel is your CEO is probably in a position where he or she may hear about it from others and then is going to wonder why he or she did not hear it from you first. And so you have that dilemma you're confronted with as a general counsel too. But generally speaking, I think it is, you should err on the side of being a little more deliberative and trying to gather a few more facts and resist the impulse to make sure that you're keeping the CEO constantly informed the moment it happens in real time because we all know that the facts that happen in real time oftentimes aren't the facts. Right. And I was gonna say, the other thing is, to Larry's point, that life is not as clean as a hypothetical. There are always other factors. So there may be a board meeting coming up in X number of days. And if this really happened and you don't tell the CEO and he doesn't tell the board, and it, they find out that you knew about it, you know, so you may need to conclude whatever investigation you can if it's 10 days away in eight or nine days so you can talk to the CEO and be prepared for that board meeting. Or you may be about to re-sign a major customer contract and this may implicate what the customer would think. Or, I mean, there, there are those kinds of factors that are going to play into the timing of how long you have to investigate and when you need to make some of these disclosures. That's, that's the beauty people. of being in-house counsel, right? I mean, when you're outside counsel, where I have been in my past life, you're, you're getting these facts oftentimes too late in the game. And as a general counsel in the organization, you are aware of how all the pieces are kind of fitting together. And it gives you, a, you're in a better position to maybe evaluate that scenario, given 
other things that are going on or about to happen in the organization. You raise an interesting point. Several times in the panel, you talked about how outside counsel could be used for assistance, bringing a level of objectivity, uh, letting someone else make that decision so it's not uh, you as the person inside kind of reinforcing and maybe telling you, hey, you need to do this. You can go to the CEO and say, hey, we need to investigate. I was struck, and I think, Larry, you brought it up. What if uh, instead of saying don't investigate, the CEO says don't use outside counsel? We have no money in the budget for outside counsel. And so now it's a budgetary restriction, but essentially that that important assistant, uh, you know, confidant uh, person is gone. How do you deal with that? Who gets to make the decision on hiring outside counsel? I mean, is that something you insist on as in-house counsel, the need to do it? I assume that's going to create a lot of tension budgetarily. I don't know. I don't, well, well, welcome I, tips on that. I, I, my answer to that question is I had some fundamental prerequisites before I accepted the position. And one of them was that I had to have exclusive control over the outside counsel budget and the decisions about when to engage outside counsel, which was agreed to. Not every general counsel may have the privilege of having those terms given to them as part of their offer, but I would suggest to you that if you can negotiate that up front, that's exactly what you should do. And so that even when you're told in that fact situation, don't do it, don't have the money for it, I, I can tell you that I think in a number of those cases, you'd probably just have to go ahead and do it. It's kind of the, you know, ask for forgiveness later scenario. I think that's right. I mean, I have been at points in my career in a place where there really was no money. You know, it's not that we want to spend it here and not there, or the CEO doesn't want you spending money on what he or she sees as a frivolous investigation. but the company was just in really tough straits and there really was no money, then I think you really do just have to do your best. Hopefully you don't have that combined with a hostile management team. I think if the management team wants to help, sees the need for the investigation, but there just isn't money, then you find internal resources, you train people, you do what you need to do. But I would agree with Chris, short of the fact that there truly is no money in the bank account, you have to be able to do it. And there are less expensive resources versus more expensive resources. There are consultants and professionals who are not outside law firms. I mean, there are different ways to attack this, again, especially early when you don't know the scope of the problem or what you're dealing with. But I don't think you can just not do it. And a, and a more refined uh, level of the question is also sort of what what is the scope of the diligence? So when we do an investigation like this, we always write up an investigative work plan that we say, what are we going to do, by when, who's going to do it, who's going to get interviewed, what documents are we going to review, who's going to do that document review, whether it's contract lawyers or what have you. And then that's a back and forth, usually with GC. So it's not usually the, all of us lawyers ganging up on the uh, CFO who won't, who won't pay the bill. It's really in-house counsel has a legal budget. And I can't do a million dollar investigation on every, every issue that hits my desk. So how do we write up that work plan? And that's a good point for folks who are new to the GC role not to fear or allow you know, outside counsel to just run rampant. It's not like once you hire outside counsel, you have to let them do everything under the sun that they can dream up or somebody may accuse you of not having done a full investigation. That dialogue is absolutely critical and yeah. necessary and important. And you can also phase things, right? You can do some of the investigation and then regroup and talk about based on what we've seen now, what are the next steps and what do we do? And, and so it doesn't have to be a runaway budget issue either. This is more important now than ever, the notion of having an investigative work plan. Uh, I'll tell you why. 
it used to be that sort of you would just hire the, the lawyer, he would go in and ask a bunch of questions and look at some stuff and do things and the bill would just keep going. But we now are in a situation where whistleblowers attack in the midst of an investigation. And so how do you justify that you have either done a complete investigation or, or where you are on it? The benefit of the work plan is it allows someone to say, well, we are now in the process of looking at this issue. And so you guys can back down. And I can tell you that when we've gotten subpoenas or CIDs, to be able to say, hey, it's Larry, I'm looking at this, we're halfway through our work plan, I'll talk to you when we're done. They'll usually say, okay, that's pretty good and we will listen to that. And I've routinely had that result. The other part is, you know when you're done. Because if you have lawyers who just could spend forever and associates can make their yearly, hourly quota <laughs> on, your, on your back, for what? But if you don't have the, if you have a work plan, then you can say that's, that's the plan. Right. No, you are expected to manage that resource when you're a general counsel. Uh, during the presentation, Chris, you talked a little bit about setting the tone at the top early on, and I thought those were great tips, whether really whether it's a healthcare client or other clients. Can you share, again, for our listening audience, some of those, the ways to try to set the right tone? I think that uh, it's an overworked phrase. And I've sat in CLE programs where other people on the panel say exactly what I just said. And I find myself rolling my eyes sometimes. But the fact of the matter is, from the CEO, from the board on down, if the employees do not see and appreciate that leadership is committed to compliance, that leadership is committed to a culture of honesty and integrity, and that no one will have uh, action taken against them because they brought something forward that they thought was wrong, if that isn't unambiguous and clear from the top leaders of the organization, then you're running uphill already. So I think it's really important for CEOs and top leadership to be out there regularly communicating with the employees about their commitment to that. And that should be part of the education where CEO and others are delivering that message. I've seen some organizations actually build a compliance element into performance reviews and even into incentive bonus plans for leadership who have that opportunity uh, by including, for example, compliance survey questions as part of employee surveys and making sure that a score has to hit a certain level in those areas in order for there to be a positive performance review or in order for there to be an incentive award for the CEO. So there are a variety of ways to actually incent that behavior, but candidly, if that's what's required to get it to happen, you have a problem. Well, and I would agree with Chris. I've had the same experience. I could not agree more. The tone from the top makes a huge difference. Where I, particularly early in my career, have rolled my eyes in those CLEs where people say that is, sometimes you feel powerless to change that, particularly when you're in more of a mid-level position. As the GC, you should be able to have some influence over the rest of the management team and educating them on the importance and getting them to be public with the rest of the employees about how they feel about it and that sort of thing. But when you're in more of a line position, you may know that's true, but you can't affect it. So how do you do your job? And that's the frustrating part. I mean, you can talk to your GC and you can ask and you can beg and you can recommend some of these tips and things. but culture is a hard thing to change um, and it's a hard thing to influence again if you're outside the c-suite so that's a challenge 
We talked too about education and especially if you're in an organization with a large workforce and you need to train the entire workforce, it's impossible to do that in person settings uh, and hit the entire workforce. You'd have to have a, a staff that no CEO would ever approve. <laughs> and even then it's questionable, you'd be, be training all the time. So most companies, mine included, resort to online training. But I think as we talked about at the panel today, you know certain potential hotspots in your organization where there's a greater likelihood of issues to arise. For those, if you can put in a targeted plan for in-person education to teach those managers what those issues are, to teach those managers how to deal with disgruntled employees who are bringing forward issues, that is a key element to changing the culture and to empowering those kind of mid-level people who, as Karen pointed out, you know, the frustration where they feel left out and are powerless to change. That's a way to empower them to change. And then they bring that message to the people that report to them. And one of our co-panelists today made a great point, which is she talked about making sure your training, particularly the targeted training for high-risk groups, uses hypotheticals that are relevant to your organization. Because I do think most employees want to do the right thing. And most people understand the basic message of don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. But the more complex ways in which that comes up, the more subtle ways in which certain behaviors might cause a misreporting issue or some kind of fraud or some kind of abuse, I think connecting those dots from the rule to practice is hard for some folks, especially less experienced employees. So giving them relevant hypotheticals. She said in her one of her organizations, they actually used hypotheticals that had happened in that organization at previous times. So they really rang true and helped people to understand how to connect those dots. One strategy I've used to help with the setting the tone at the top comes up in the many opportunities around presentations or meetings. So there's always a slide deck, there's always a discussion about a transaction or a deal or some new thing. And I mindfully create opportunities for the most senior manager to start the meeting with a description of what's important here from a compliance perspective. Put an agenda item on there so that she can say this is important to me and these are the rules that we have to follow. Even if the lawyer is the one who's then going to explain them. That does two things. One is everyone in the room heard that. And the second thing is she said it. And so she said it to herself. And so she's starting to reinforce that being, that's the most important thing in this meeting. That's the thing that the lawyer wanted me to say first. Okay, I'll say that. And then there'll also be a cognitive dissonance later, should she go and not be supportive of those values that she said were important at the beginning of the meeting. That's a good point. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. At the end, we were talking, and it relates a little bit to that in my mind, about cognitive bias and the the desire to, if you think things are going badly, maybe to make the, the wrong decision or be risk averse, go into a hole, look, look at things and maybe not talk. And I, I think that was a, another tip that I think often applies where you end up getting tunnel vision. Maybe you've made a mistake, someone else has made a mistake, and this desire to simply minimize loss and not let other people do about it. So I'm interested in your thoughts as a panel when it comes to some of these hard compliance issues. You know, there was a suggestion of getting a, a fresh perspective, an outside view, someone that's not impacted by that bias. How do you go about doing that? What are, what are some of the, you know, the solutions to address that, that bias? Well, I think 
back to using outside counsel where you can as a sounding board, or we talked about if for some reason you don't have outside counsel, someone else in the organization who's not as close. The, the discussion at the time was around, right, if things start to go badly, you can be sort of panicked and you can be thinking about what does this mean? Do I have to resign? Am I going to get fired? You just have a lot going on. You know, did I make a mistake? If you made a mistake or someone on your team made a mistake. So you've got all kinds of layers of both intellectual and emotional stuff going on. And being able to get someone like outside counsel is much more removed from that situation. Larry is not going to lose his job if this one thing went badly on my team at my company. So he can really look at it from a much more balanced perspective and help sort through. And also if there's a situation where I'm trying to talk myself into or out of a certain position, and I can kind of get there, but I'm not sure it feels right. Again, somebody who's on the outside who can look at that and say, you're putting too much weight on these factors, or you're not putting enough weight here, or have you thought about it this way, have you asked that question, can really help center you again or balance you and take you away from all that emotion and really look at the facts in the law. It can also help you with a full stop. And one of this, this was Lisa's point during our remarks is that once problems happen, then you kind of dig your hole uh, deeper as you play around, hoping that you'll be able to get out of it. But if you had that outside call <laughs> to just stop right now and then to survey things, sometimes it's not quite as bad. And you're probably not going to lose your job over this issue at this point, but you will six months later after you've buried it and covered it up. Mm -hmm. um, and if you have, if you can't, for some reason, use outside counsel at that point, if, say, you have a compliance officer who's outside the legal department, or in some cases, generally your CFO might not be the right person, but they might be, depending on their background and your relationship with them, just someone else who's a little bit outside of what she was calling the loss frame, um, who can be a sounding board and help you think through things. Certain board members also play mm -hmm. that role valuably. Uh, compliance committee uh, chairs who are wise, but out dispassionate enough and outside or, uh, to do that. This happens in every environment. It's not just an in-house counsel's burden. It happens in law firms as well, I'm sure. We have, I'm sure Womble has an ethics partner, Foley and Lardner has an ethics partner. I find myself going to those people to be that sounding board the same way you guys might come mm -hmm. to, to us. And those people have that clinical distance that they can say, no, you, you're okay, or you're not, but let's fix it together. That's great. I wanted to finish by taking the hypothetical, but maybe a next step. So we've got an employee who hears about this rumor. Let's say you convince Rex, uh, the CEO, to let you do the investigation. But the investigation ends, as many do, with a he said, she said, where you know the nurse is saying, yes, the, the doctor gave me the password, and the, the physician saying, I never gave her the password. I think many of you said, that probably never really going to happen because of the records. I guess what I wonder about, it goes to this burden of proof question that we got during the session too. Who decides who to believe? Is it your job as the in-house counsel to say, here, I believe the nurse or I believe the doctor? Does the CEO get to weigh in? Does the board get to decide who's telling the truth? How do you, ultimately, you're going to have to take a position with the regulatory agency to say, this is a problem or it's not a problem or this is what happened. But that whole question about the burden of proof or who's the decision maker seems murky to me. I'd welcome your thoughts on, on that piece. Chris made the point, and I think he's right, there's so much electronic documentation these days and so many unbiased sources you can look at. I think it's highly unlikely you get, in this fact pattern certainly, to a he said, she said. I mean, either he gave her his password or he did, you know, she logged in, she did, and she did these things. So I do find that it's unlikely you will get all the way to the end of the day where outside counsel doesn't have a conclusion or a recommendation of who 
seems credible, who doesn't? I mean, maybe you do need to present it to the board with some gray around. This witness seemed more credible than this one. You can't say for sure he's telling the truth, she's lying. But I feel like you get to a point where you... I think you do, but there certainly are circumstances where you can find yourself in that exact situation. And I think you have to examine as much collateral evidence or information as you can get your hands on because in the end you are probably going to have to make a judgment about who is more trustworthy, who is more credible than the other and go forward on that basis. You know, we don't always get perfect black and white answers. And at the end of the day, whose decision? I mean, it's the organization's decision. Back to the organization is the client. So at the end of the day, if it's really that close, it's got to be the board. Right. Right. And yeah. you got to present to the board all the information you have if the CEO has a different opinion or outside counsel exactly. has a different opinion. You get all that information in front of them, and they ultimately run the show. But I do think that that is the, the responsibility of the person who's leading the investigation to ultimately come up with a conclusion. And I think that that's, that, yes. that, that's, that's what you're, you're paying for, yes. is that that person's judgment at the end of the day, with so many years of experience and this level of diligence that they thought was a prudent investigative plan, at the end of the day, that's their conclusion. Then you have a report, or whether it's oral yeah. or written. What the board is much more likely to be debating is what do we do with it, yeah. right? What yeah. is the right course of action if it's not the building is burning down or nothing bad happened, but it's somewhere in between, then what is the prudent course for the organization? And that's more likely what they're sure. debating than did it happen or didn't it happen. The debate that, that we undertake all the time is really the intent debate. You know, if you do 100 of these investigations a year, how many of them really had somebody intentionally violating the law, knowing what they were doing, or had some other nefarious purpose versus just the empty head, white heart defense, which you see plenty of times in, in this uh, business. And that's the judgment call, I think, more than he said, she said, because ultimately I could figure out what the right answer is to what really happened. But what are they trying to do? And who, who knew about it and what did they think about it? That's the one that where I like to make sure that there's a consensus with the team, the in-house lawyer, the outside lawyer, and then the did other officer people if she's involved. Miss the signs of it, or do right. they yeah, intentionally right. cover it up? Mm. Right, kind of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And it occurs to me that applies not just to this fact scenario with logging in, no. but uh, you know, You're a right. sexual harassment complaint or some other type of uh, deception or miss. You know, it, there's a lot financial of areas, accounting issues, right? Financial right. stuff where Absolutely. intent's going to matter a lot. Innocent error, innocent bump, innocent remark, or deliberate wrongdoing that has to be adjusted. And that is, I think that. That's a good point. And, and Larry, I think your point about whoever's doing that investigation is charged with trying to determine what the facts are. And sometimes that's credibility. It's not always a provable black and white. Often credible, um, yeah, you know, right. that, that credibility is important and kind of an assessment sure. of the witness, what they're saying, and the circumstances and surrounding stuff. So not easy stuff, but I think that's part of that, part of that role. Whether it's not it's what the, you see on TV, right? Yeah. No. There's always <laughs> the smoking gun that that's answers right. the question, right? Yeah, they rarely confess in real life. <laughs> Well, let me, I, those are some of the questions that came out to me. I wanted to end by also inviting you. I know you've spent a lot of time preparing and probably had some other, may have other things that you talked about that didn't have time for. Anything else you want to share, you know, uh, from a healthcare perspective that maybe I didn't touch on or didn't come up in the panel in terms of parting remarks or final thoughts? Well, I, I actually did say this as a concluding remark at the panel, and that is that, you know, compliance is not you know, what your document says, and it's not even necessarily what you do in the way of ongoing audits to detect issues. Compliance in the end is a statement of culture of the organization, and it's something that has to be 
constantly nurtured and developed if you're going to be successful as an organization and have an environment where employees feel comfortable bringing forward issues and knowing that the organization is going to take them seriously and do everything possible to resolve them. Right. Sounds like a pretty good last word. I think that's a good. <laughs> I think that's a good. I think that's a good last word. So I want to thank all of you for joining me on this episode. Wow. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our other episodes from the ACC Annual Conference, which will be rolling out every two weeks. You can download or stream those and other past episodes, or subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or visit our website at womblebonddickinson.com forward slash US forward slash podcast. As always, I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. This has been In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.